0: Right, Welcome, those of you watching online, welcome to the Chicago cohort. We're going to be studying uh, the book of Acts, chapter 27, uh, also known as the Pentecostal handbook. Today we'll be looking at Paul's shipwreck and uh, him being stranded on the island of Malta. That's not the Goya drink, by the way. I just had to say that, uh, you know, Malta for my gente. But it's an island, and it's, God really shows up there in the midst. It's going to be really interesting. Look forward to hearing what our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Y. Rustick, is going to teach us. Amen. Thank you. Let's give it up for Jesus. Thank you, gentlemen and sisters, brothers and sisters. Let's open up to Acts chapter 27. Uh, Chris, would you do me a favor and bring these down into the side so the uh, the people can see from the um, the angle there, the projector? Thank you. And You guys did great with worship once again. So thankful for you guys. Just as uh, Pastor Jared was saying, today in the Pentecostal handbook, we're going to learn about Paul's journey to Rome on a ship that faces many challenges and it eventually is wrecked on the island of Malta. So it looks like Jared's been reading ahead. Amen. I love our professor. He understands what we're doing here. One of the good things that uh, you guys can see as we're coming to the end of the book is that it's the end of the school year. And so this is a great accomplishment for you to have in your your mind of, of, of being a student that you went through the whole book of Acts. I remember some of the sermon series of when I was a student in Bible college. So you will be able to have this now in your toolkit. Uh, I I don't think I, uh, you know, just rushed through it. I think we took our time chapter by chapter. I brought up a lot of the controversies, a lot of the issues in the book. You are, you are able to have a defense against a lot of different attacks towards the book. And I believe that you have the heart of the book, which is really the purpose for what it was written for. We know there's a lot of sub-purposes, a defense for Paul to the Roman government, a defense to the Christians against what the Romans are doing to our apostles, a, a defense to the Jewish believer to know that the apostles were true Jews, you know. Things like that are secondary, but the primary focus of the book of Acts was to inspire us, to thousand years later think about that that's exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that this is the beginning of the last days and God is pouring out his spirit and he's doing it upon sons and daughters you know handmaidens bondmen and slaves alike you know it doesn't matter who they are it's coming on them and then as they get saved there on the day of Pentecost he says this is not just for you it's for your sons and daughters after you for as many as who the Lord our God will call it's for all the Lord our God will call and here we we are 2,000 years later, and if we traced back all of our ancestry, and I'm talking about the kind of DNA test ancestry, we would see, I mean, probably represented here just 20 to 30 nations. I mean, think about it, because I—I mean, all a lot of Latinos. You have a lot of history, you, you know. Even like somebody like Desiree, she did that. I think she had like Portuguese in her as well. Uh, the various nations of Africa that we would now consider on the one continent of Africa, of the various nations, uh, the different nomadic. Uh, n- n- what do we call it? Uh, the Viking. Uh, Nordic tribes, yes, with uh, with uh, Jared and with myself. You know, I, I you know if I can afford it one day and have the time, I really would like to see. Am I really just 50% Italian, as my mom and all of her ancestors were, and 50% Polish, as my dad and all his ancestors were, or were this was there intermingling? Is my Polish blood with German and Russian blood? Is it mixed in there? Your other European nations? Is my Italian blood mixed in with other blood, like Albanian uh, Albanian blood and all of that? I I just learned by looking. At a map that Albania is right next to Italy. That's why they look so much like us. Every time I see these Albanians, a lot of times when I see them, it's they're they're running the um the valet services. That's when I've run into them, and I keep thinking they're Italian. I'm like, are you guys Italian? They're like, No, we are Albanian, we're Albanian, you know. Uh, and, and it's like, you look just like me, though. You look just like me, and, and who knows? But this is the beauty of Pentecost. Here we are, male and female. All uh, of us can relate to that, and then all of us can relate to the different nations that we come from, and many of us probably can relate to being slave and free, slave and free, looking back at our ancestors. We don't even know his his people might have been enslaved by the Romans. Your people might have been enslaved by the Europeans. Your people might have been enslaved by the Aztecs. You know, your tribe might not have been the Aztecian tribe. You might have been the little one that got conquered by them. And here we are together, all free in the Lord, Amen. And praise God, we're all free in the country as well. But this is this is the Pentecostal handbook. It is a multicultural book. It is a multi-generational book. It is a book of hope. It is a book of power. It is a book of identity not in race, but not in a man, but in the God-man. In the new kind of race. In the new humanity. In those who are born of the Spirit. Amen? Not just those born of flesh and blood, but those born in the Spirit. Because you you may not look like me. No no one else here may be Polish like me, but you are closer to me than any Polsky person running around down here. You know, you to me are closer to me than even my Polish uncles because you are the body of Christ. I am connected to you. Jesus said, even Jesus said, who's my mother and brother and sisters and all that? It's those who do the will of God. So I hope that as you see us coming to the end of the book of Acts, That, yes, you're happy and excited for it to be over because it marks an end of a season, end of a school year. But that you can see for the entire history now, I mean, for the entire uh, moving forward of your ministry, you will now be able to look back at this as your historical account. That you learned the history of the church and you understood the history of your people. These are your people. Let me emphasize this as well. This is your people. This is, this is more important to you. This should be more important to you than anything a Polish person has ever done. Anything that a Latino has ever done. Anything that an Italian has ever done. These are my people. And thank God for reminding me of this because I want to take this segue right now. On my way to church Sunday, and I may cry about this right now, I was crying as I was looking at my daughter, understanding the generational blessing that's coming upon them and how we're raising them upright and, and just imagining what they're going to be like 20, 30 years from now when they're your age and sitting in classrooms like this. God then showed me a vision, this is, this is the only way I would describe it, so it wouldn't be like a vision where I couldn't drive, it would be like an imagination kind of vision where it wasn't produced by my own thoughts, I believe it was divinely given to me, but it kind of went over like a film, the, the world that I'm looking at. So I'm driving and I'm looking at the road and I'm being safe, but in my mind's eye, like a film going over uh, the environment, I see myself going to heaven. And it is a typical scene that you would see in one of these uh, cartoons. I'm coming to the gates, and, and there's somebody meeting me there. And, and I'm meeting my mom and dad there, and they're telling me, welcome home, son, because I'm imagining that I, I, they've already gone home to be with the Lord. And then something the Lord shows me is special. And it, it really hit home to me because Prior to to yesterday, Sunday, I was studying uh, the life of uh, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. And I've just been getting this insatiable appetite to learn more about these men. And and the older I'm getting now, the more I care about them. And I think when I was really young, I didn't really care about them so much because I felt like I knew it all and I was going to do it all. And who cares about John Wesley? He was just some dude. I got the Bible too. But now that I'm realizing the journey of faith, I'm looking back on these men and women in their lives, and and his wife was a powerful preacher. She would not let anybody tell her that a woman couldn't preach. She actually, on one Sunday, went up and took the mic without anybody's permission and just started preaching, and then she told her husband, this is what I'm going to do, and nobody's going to stop me, in other words. And he had to get a word from the Lord to let her do that and continue that, but it didn't matter what he was going to say. She was going to do that, and it's just a powerful story. Now, I don't know how all the details went, but that's how it says in the story. She just went up one Sunday. As he's getting up to preach, she just kind of met him up there and passed him up, and said, I'm preaching today, and, and that's how it went down with her. And that wasn't a time when that was so far from even being acceptable, but she didn't care. So anyways, I'm seeing this picture of me going to heaven, my mom and dad. And then this is what they say. There's some people here that want to greet you coming into heaven. And I see John Wesley, and I see William Booth, and I see William Seymour, and I see them meeting me there. And they say, well done, brother. Brother well done. You kept it going. You kept our traditions going that we got from Jesus, you know. And I just thought about, you know, what it would be like to see these men and them to say, you were just one of us. We were together. Because sometimes as a pastor doing something like this, I feel so alone, so unappreciated in the larger body of Christ. But I know these men and women went through the same things I did. You know, we look at right now Salvation Army, and how do we know them? We know them as the Santa Claus people ringing bells with buildings all over the city. These people started with nothing. I haven't got to the end of his life, but I'm sure there will only be a few buildings by the time he dies. Now they're known for having hundreds of buildings. As a matter of fact... Croc uh, uh, is the founder of McDonald's well the guy who kind of took it and made it his if you know the story of McDonald's but his second wife left the largest one time donation to Salvation Army and she dictated that it had to go to their facilities and I think if you guys look it up it was over a billion dollars and so I mean Salvation Army has always been known now to us and especially in my generation of having buildings, having money, being cool and being okay but all it was for William Booth and his wife was a struggle, was a fight, was reaching the poor, reaching the hurting, doing urban ministry, being rejected by the church. That was their salvation army. Now for us, this is salvation army. And, that, and that's what I was saying, the same thing like with John Wesley. For them, it was outdoor preaching meetings. It was persecution. They had uh, very little at the beginning, and it wasn't until the end that they had something, but it was very disorganized. It was the second and third generations that really organized it, and they got to see those revivals continue on. And so in my mind, I just had that mindset like, like these men would know me, like they would know me, and they would say, brother, you represent it, you held it down. And I know for some of you it doesn't seem like much, but that had me bawling like a little child. I was bawling like a little child because it, it of course, is all for Christ, and, and of course I want to see Christ. But what Christ would, was showing me in that moment was you were among a cloud of witnesses, You know, you weren't alone. You weren't crazy. You weren't the only one that thought this way, that believed that the world could change that way. I had other people that believed the same thing. And then I kind of um, just imagined me talking to them and having conversations. And it not just being silly conversations, but being conversations of substance. And so somehow I believe those things will happen in the kingdom to come. Like I've said before, it's not going to be ethereal. It's not going to just be dream state like, whoa, we're in heaven, heaven, heaven. And we're floating around. Like, I know I believe heaven will be a primary focus on Jesus and the throne. Probably won't be talking a lot to people like that. But then as the kingdom of heaven comes to earth and we reign for a 1,000 years, I believe we will sit on thrones ruling nations and we will have committee meetings with those people and we'll be able to have those conversations. But there was just something in the picture of heaven, me seeing them and then letting me know that they were proud of me in this generation. Like, and, and, and what I felt in my heart, I think that was really bringing the tears, the emotion, was that, um, was that I was saying back to them, you know, I tried to believe in what you believed in. You know, like that was like my heart cry back to them was, brothers, I believed in what you believed in, you know, and so they were saying, brother, you, you you held on to it, and I was saying back to them, brothers, I just believed what y'all believed, you know, thinking about William Seymour, the black man that was rejected by the white church, and he takes the, the doctrines of Pentecost to, uh, you know, to to uh, Los Angeles, and they don't have a place to meet, he meets on a, in a home, the home gets filled up, and then the, the, they have to go to an old horse stable, and, and he's persecuted, and they they, the newspapers write about him, and he's put down for being black and then everybody's put down for being in a black church that's white and then the the just the, the whole persecution of being pentecostal from the church itself so they were getting persecuted from every direction everybody was persecuting them yet they were having the greatest time of their life they were having the founding of a movement and it's like the old saying is true. If this is wrong, I don't want to be right, you know. Uh, culturally wrong, we should say, because I always want to be right with Jesus. But I just love the idea of this 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 black man, you know, in his 40s or 50s. He's got a, a, a horse stable filled with white and black people. Newspaper reporters are there. And he, he has a decision to make. Can you plug that in for me, please? He has a decision to make whether or not he's going to, you know, have, and, and plug in this one as well. He has a decision to make on whether. Whether or not he's going to continue with his services, knowing the reporter is there, knowing they're gonna write about him, and then he just turns loose the spirit and says, I don't care, say about me whatever you want. See, that that's what encourages me about those men. They had so much, they had so much bravery. Let's look to Acts chapter 27 now, verse one. Yes, thank you, sirs. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship for Andromethium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. We put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So now it's time to bring him to Caesar. He appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he'll go. Now he's going there, if we remember, he's doing this to get away from the the trumped-up charges of the Jewish people and for their plot to try to kill him in transport without Roman guard back to Jerusalem. That was their plan. So he wants to be under Roman guard, and he wants to go to Rome. And that's what God told him to do, even under chains, as Agabus had prophesied. He's going to do that to preach the gospel there and to suffer for Christ. And let me just say this as well. When you read the early church... They romanticized in a good way, not in a naive way, martyrdom. They longed to be martyred. And their mindset, martyrdom, was the closest example to following Jesus. So to them, it wasn't even if we will die. It's when we will die for Christ. Ignatius even tells the people in his writings, and you read Ignatius, a church father, he was a disciple of John, he tells the people, do not pray that I might be delivered. Pray that I may have strength to die for my Savior. Those were the prayers of the early church fathers. And so Paul is not going on this journey uh, with a little tear in his eye saying, this is not what I want. His desires were so in line with Christ that this was what exactly he wanted. He wanted to show that he loved Jesus so much that he was willing to face Caesar and whatever consequence that would follow And we know eventually under Nero, as the emperor Caesar of Rome, that would be behead, uh, being beheaded. So here's a map of the whole entire journey. What it's saying right now is they're basically catching a ship that came from Turkey. That's where that place was. He's catching a ship that came from that region, and now it's going to be traveling up into these regions. And so you can just see now he's going to travel up north, and then he's going to go over east here. And then we're going to eventually see that there's a shipwreck. So there's the map into the notes. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs." Once again, it's a historical document. There's people that are named. Why would you name these people unless you really believed you were telling the truth? As we mentioned before, Luke is also writing this historical account in the lifetime of the people. Julius would still be alive at this time. He might be able to contradict it and say, I was never there. Or there's not a guy named Julius who uh, is a leader of a regiment. So if you're writing fiction, why put names that you're expecting people to know because then it's going to make you look dumb. You're not. And if you're writing the truth, why would you fabricate things and add miracles unless you really believed miracles were real? So we shouldn't read Acts as a mythological book. It has all the marks of history. And therefore, whenever we see the miracles happening in the book of Acts, we should take them as historical accounts. Do you all believe in miracles? We believe in miracles. So uh, he's re- remember, he's not necessarily, Paul at this time, It's not necessarily a prisoner Though he calls himself a prisoner at various times, but not a prisoner in the way we would think is a prisoner. He's had no charge against him. He has not been found guilty by Roman law of anything. And if he hadn't appealed to Rome to go to Caesar, he would be released by now. But he is a prisoner for the Lord's sake in the sense that he's now under the authority of the Roman government and guard. Now, at different times, it can get worse for him, but this is where he finds favor. At other times, he's actually put on house arrest. At, in Rome, we believe he's able to live in a house. Uh, just as long as you don't leave, you're fine. We'll let you know when Caesar wants to meet with you under those kind of circumstances. So we don't want to over dramatize what he's going through right now. So he's not, like, getting beat all the way there. You know, he's getting persecuted. No, he's, he's on a ship. He's under Roman guard, and they go, hey, you can go visit your friends. Let them give you some stuff. Go hang out with them. And if you wanted to escape, he could have tried to escape. That would have been his choice. But then why would he have appealed to Caesar? Uh, he's going to fulfill what he has said. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. What do we notice about the we and the us here? What does that tell us? Luke is with him. The author is with him. So Luke has been faithful to Paul. You'll see at times that Paul sends out people, but then he also brings them back. And so those are his, ambas- his ambassadors. Those are the ones that he trusts to go back and forth to these churches. And Luke was left somewhere, and now he's coming back, and now he's actually going to travel with Paul. Verse 5, when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lucia. Uh, Lucia. Now, what's awesome about this is that they are being honest about their travels to the details. This city, to this city, to this city. Once again, history. I love it because I believe in the miracles just as much as I believe they went from this city to this city to this city. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So now we switch from the other ship we were on unto an Alexandrian ship. I don't want to keep reemphasizing it, but how many are just hearing history? Do you just hear the history, right? It's clear as day. This is a historical account. Verse 7, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinaitis. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Creed opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Wouldn't this be beautiful if I say all the names somewhat correctly today? Uh, I'm already halfway through. Of course, we don't believe in jinxing ourselves or anything like that. That's not a a Christian belief. So I'm going to believe I'm going to finish the whole thing, at least as good as I possibly can. So they're going to, in that section right there, coming to Lycia, I actually tracked out the miles to go from Jerusalem to Rome. I believe it's about 900. So if you look at the 150 and you go 150, 300, you know, uh, 450, uh, whatever that next one is, you know, and you just keep kind of using the map there. It's about 900 miles. And then if you look online, a flight will take you there, and I think about five to six hours. These guys are taking weeks and months and risking their life. And when you think about them being on boats with sails, what they're talking about is, you know, I don't know much about sailing. But when you put out your boat, you put up the sail on a boat, it kind of has to follow the direction of the wind. And so there comes to be times where they're wanting to go a certain direction and the wind's going, no, you're going to go this direction. So one of their tricks of how to navigate the open Mediterranean Sea, which seas lead out to oceans, by the way, and really what's the difference between a sea and ocean and a gulf, nothing It's all the same body of water. Continents are just in between all of these lands, but Atlantic, Pacific, they're all just water bodies. And then here was something that I learned because I was at the the beach quite a bit this this past month, I know the last couple weeks. We wanted to know what's the difference between salt water and fresh water. And guess what? Nothing. Because salt water, when it gets evaporated into the air, is fresh water. And fresh water, when it goes onto land, runs downstream with rivers, gets its minerals, dumps into an ocean, that's how you get salt water. So there's actually no difference in the water other than the content of minerals that make up the salt. Can we run out of water on the earth? Actually, you cannot. There's always going to be the same amount of water unless something happens drastically wrong with our ozone and then we, we leak it out. But that would be very highly unlikely, and that's not even an issue with the, uh, the climate people. That, that's, that, not, that kind of thing. There would actually be like some type of an explosion to evaporate our atmosphere that keeps water in or something that takes us off a gravitational pull that keeps it staying where it's at. But just if the earth continues the way it is, you'll never run out of water. Uh, it will always be here. And the same thing is with materials. You can transform the, transform the materials, but all the materials are going to be here unless you're launching the stuff out into space. Does everybody get that? So we're in a closed system, as it were. So the the idea is here, they're, they're starting to run into issues, and they have to stay along the coast so that they don't get the big open wind in the middle of the sea to just take them wherever the wind wants to take them. That's what we're learning here as we learn a little bit about nautical things, okay? Now, uh, going to verse 9, much time had been lost. Why are they losing time? Because they keep getting blown around places they don't want to be and they're sticking close to the land to avoid that and going the long way around the land instead of just cutting across right to Rome. So after much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to the man of God to Paul said, he followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. So Paul now has a word. It's not going to go good for us. We need to just stop where we're at now, winter here, rest here, wait for winds to die down, then move. The guys, you know, probably in charge of like, who are you? You're, you're just some Jewish guy. We don't need to listen to you. You don't even know about sailing a ship. You know, I'm the owner, and this is my pilot, you know, the, 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 the main guy in charge, the captain. We don't need to listen to you. We're going on. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on. So, okay, we can't winter here, but maybe Paul was saying go back or find another place to winter in that area. Hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there, there was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship caught, was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. So now they're just being taken over by the wind, just exactly like Paul had warned them would happen. As we passed to the lee of the small island called uh, Quad, Cowda. there we go. I was almost making it through the whole thing. Quaoda. Amen. Thank you for your help, though. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. So they're literally wrapping the ship with the rope. You know it's bad when they do that. Uh, Let me just let you know this as well. If you're ever on a plane and you watch the pilot come out with a wrench walking somewhere, uh, you know you're in trouble as well. Like, I literally watched the pilot, like, leave out from where he was at with the wrench, and then around that same time, um, we're having trouble with the landing gear right now. I was just sent uh, the co-pilot out there to see if he can manually lower the landing gear. Uh, yeah, that's the time my wife said she's never seen me turn more pale, you know. I was like, what did they just say? The landing gear won't go down. And there goes Tom with the wrench. You know, they go like, crank, crank that thing down. I mean, come on now, Captain Tom. Uh, so yeah, when you see, when you're on a boat and they're like, uh, let's wrap this up with rope right now, guys. <laughs> let's pass it through, you know. You know it's going to get bad. So they, they then passed the ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sartis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So now, dude, they just literally dropped the anchor. And this has happened to me when I go out just a little bit into the ocean. Uh, I drop the anchor, and it just keeps pushing me. The anchor doesn't stop the boat from moving. These guys are in big ships with big anchors, and it doesn't stop them. They're, they're just getting dragged along. But it's better than not having an anchor and just free floating across the, the water there. So they're getting driven along with the anchor down. Verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. So you would think around this time, they would say, we should have listened to Paul. We should have listened to the apostle, right? Look at your neighbor and say, listen to the apostle. Amen. Listen to the man or woman of God. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So now they're just getting rid of everything. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. How many know if you haven't seen the sun or the moon in many days, you're pretty much saying it's time for me to meet Jesus. Like that's even what he says, like we, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Like Luke is like, I'm dying on this ship. There's no way this is going to go good for us. We have thrown everything over. We've wrapped the boat up. Nothing has helped, and I don't even know where the sun is at. And at that point, they would—they wish they would have listened to Paul. After that had gone on a long time without without food, Paul stood up before them and said, "Men, I love this. I told you so. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. Look at your neighbors. Say you better take the apostle's advice. Come on, or you may suffer great loss and damage. Amen." Listen to the men and women of God in your life, lest you suffer great loss and damage. That's not allegorical preaching. That's biblical preaching, exegetically correct. It's just whether or not you still believe God speaks to apostles. Hey, do we have Pentecostals in here that still believe God speaks to apostles? And if He's still speaking to apostles, then that means we believe in two things we believe in spiritual gifts, there's four today. And if he's still speaking for to apostles, then that means the other five-fold ministry gifts are still available. So even if you're not an apostle, God can speak to a pastor. Listen to your pastor. God can speak to the teacher. Listen to the teacher. God can speak to the evangelist. Listen to the evangelist. God can speak to the, to the, the five-fold ministry. And we ought to do that, that we don't suffer damage and loss. Verse 22. Paul continues on. He says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. It's kind of like I got bad news and good news. Which one do you all want first? Uh, Here's the good news. None of you all are going to die. Here's the bad news. The ship is sinking. The ship will be destroyed. That's the bad news there. What I love that Paul says is he tells them to keep your courage. Somebody say keep your courage. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about courage, and I want to read it to you because courage is one of the greatest attributes you can find in human life, in the human experience. C.S. Lewis said, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but is the very form of every virtue at its testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. Listen to that again. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. Courage is what you need to do. Uh, Courage is what you need to have to keep love in your marriage. Love is an attribute, but without courage, love can fail. You must have courage to trust God In the love he's given you for your spouse, lest you become afraid and ditch your marriage. You all get that? It's the same thing about learning to be under self-control and self-discipline. If you don't have courage to remain in the time of testing, you will quit school, you'll drop the class, you'll stop working hard because you wanted the easy way out. Courage infuses every virtue to its highest point. Courage is at the highest point of every single virtue. Why do I like myths? Just like the the, the post I shared on Facebook not too long ago. Myths are true not because of the details or the characters they talk about, such as dragons and so forth, but they're true because they teach us that dragons can be beaten. That's what C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien wanted to teach us in their myths is that myths teach us the virtues of human experience, and every great myth, every great story has courage. I was thinking about one of my favorite stories. Some of you uh, may laugh at this, but it actually uh, brings tears to my eyes. I was weeping when I was watching it with my children. It's the Jungle Book story. Anybody see the new remake of that movie, Jungle, Jungle Book? So uh, the guy, he meets the bear, and the bear has a way of manipulating this little boy to get him honey. How many know that part of the story? The bear doesn't want to climb up this this jagged cliff to get more honey. So he tricks the boy into going up there to face possibly falling down, to die, and to face all of the bees' wrath who make this big honeycomb up there. But the boy does it. And the boy really believes that this bear likes him. So he does these kinds of things for the bear. But as time goes on, we begin to realize that the bear is really selfish. And then, once you think the bear is going to change, the bear is manipulated to turn his back on the boy. Though the bear may have good reasons at that time, it's his selfishness that has him turn his back on the boy to have him suffer harm. And, dude, I will cry right now again thinking about this. And then... At the end of the story, so you guys will see my soft side right here. Then at the end of the story, see myth, it's not about the story, the characters, the talking bears and so forth, or about the dragons. They teach us that dragons can be beaten. That's what myths teach us. And so the boy now is in trouble. He's facing the villain of the story, which I believe is a huge wolf or a lion or something, a tiger facing a tiger. And at this point, the bear has been gone in the story. He's kind of been known as the sellout, the selfish one. And at the point when the boy needs him the most, the bear comes running and takes on the lion for himself. Now, the tiger. The tiger slaps him aside. And the bear can't take on the tiger. But the bear was willing to die for that young boy. Do you understand that? See, that will bring tears to my eyes. Because I see myself as that bear. I started off in ministry often self-focused, self-centered, doing things for people for my own benefit, for my own uh, uh, selfish gain. But then I began to realize that I must stand between them and the enemy, willing to give my life, not as a savior complex, don't get me wrong, but willing to lay my life down for them, whether it makes any difference in that quote-unquote battle, but that I would be courageous enough to run and stand before the church. See? Isn't that something? You see your pastor come to tears talking about the jungle story. But that's what myths teach us. They teach us to have courage. Now, this is not a myth. This is an historical account. How would you fare during this time? Most of us wouldn't feel comfortable on the sea, nor would these guys. A lot of the prisoners on here and the Roman soldiers, they weren't used to the sea either. And now, even at this point, they're afraid. This is what one of my friends told me who traveled on planes. I never get worried about turbulence until I see the stewards sit down and buckle up. When I see them sit down and buckle up, I know it's about ready to get bad, okay? So here's the deal. When the ship people themselves are now fearing they're going to die, when now the captains, when those who are experienced feel they're going to die on this ship, and Paul says, take courage, how would you be? Would you be afraid? You haven't seen the sun. You haven't seen the stars. You, it's so cloudy. It's so stormy. You're like in a hurricane here. Or would you trust the man or woman of God that has the word for you? Take courage. Keep your courage. I can just imagine Right now, in Indonesia, where they have been bombed for serving Jesus by the Muslims, I can just imagine uh, this one young girl who lost all of her family. I can imagine her pastor coming to her now. It was a Catholic church, so maybe let's say her priest. But we'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they love Jesus. uh, That they would come to her and say, little girl, you've lost your family. But keep your courage. God is with you. I could see them saying, I can see the pastor saying this to their people as they're being taken away to to jail, like in China or in North Korea, to the concentration camps, them saying to their children, to their family, keep your courage. And so let this be a reminder to us that whatever storms we face, everything is father filtered. No water can go into my cup in the sink unless it first goes through the filter. No problem can come into your life unless it passes first through the filtering of the Father. Every problem is father filtered. And so he says, "I am with you." Through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, "I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you to the very end of the age." And so Paul right there says, "Take Courage, keep courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last uh, night, an angel of, the, of God came to, uh, the angel, excuse me, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So here the promise comes from the angel, the messenger, who the Bible says in Hebrews, they are ministers of fire sent to serve the children of God, those who receive the inheritance. They are our servants. We were made lower than them as the heavens are lower than the earth, but we were made greater than them because none none other was given dominion over earth but us, over the heavens and the earth. And when we lost it to an angel, a man, God came in the flesh, Jesus. Jesus, to get it back so that men might be like God and rule and reign on earth again. Amen? So this angel comes and serves the man of God on behalf of God, comes and serves him and tells him it's going to be all right. Verse 25, so keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God and that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. What would you do in that situation? I mean, put yourself, let's, let's take it now to an allegorical application. We've done well to exegete it. It's okay to be allegorical in our application. Paul preached allegorical. He even did that in Galatians. He said the, uh, the two women, Hagar and Sarah, stand for two covenants, two mountains. One is Sinai, the earthly Jerusalem. That's Hagar. Sarah's of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the church and all of that. So let's apply this to our lives. Let's get that good preaching right now. What problem uh, would be the scariest problem for you to ever face in life? The problems that they were facing at this moment was the scariest of them, to drown in the open sea. That's scary. What would be yours? To, to be in a church and for everybody to split, to, to turn their back on you? What would be the worst-case scenario for you, for you to be a missionary, for you to be persecuted unto death, uh, for someone in your family to get sick, possibly even unto death, to lose children, to lose parents, for you not to have your mom and dad in your life anymore? to lose all your finances, to go through another recession, even worse, possibly a depression. So now with that in your mind, your worst, your greatest fear, would you trust the Lord? Would you trust him and say, yet will I still serve him? Though he may slay me, yet will I serve him, as the psalmist said. I will serve you, God. I will keep up my courage with tears coming down my eyes. Though my heart may fail me, though my strength may fail me, the psalmist said, yet I will hope and trust in the Lord. So those things may come and go. Your, your youth may fail you. Maybe your greatest fear is just being old and not having your strength anymore, being incapable of even taking care of yourself. I know that used to be one of my fears, looking at the people in the nursing homes uh, That's when I got called into ministry, was in the nursing home. That's another story. But looking at them is one of my greatest fears, like well, when I'll be so weak that I couldn't move myself. And one day I was in the gym and they were pushing around an older man like that, probably in his, in his 80s, and I could tell that he was annoyed you know, with the nurse or the one helping him and I don't want to be a grumpy old man, but I could tell this guy was annoyed. But there was a part of me that uh, was reminded of this meme that shows people looking into the mirror as old people. Has anybody seen those set of memes? It's an old person looking in the mirror and they're putting on their tie or or shirt or whatever, and then it shows them in the reflection of being a 30-year-old businessman because that's how they still see themselves. Or a woman, you know, she's putting on her makeup. An older woman's putting on her makeup, and in the reflection she's a beautiful 25-year-old or something, you know. And uh, so that would be like my greatest fear. And so there was a part of me when I was watching this man getting pulled long, even in his annoyance, was was there just a part of him that just wanted to stand up and say, man, I fought in a war. I was the strongest of my class. I can move myself you know? Because and, and, that's how I would be. Not grumpy, not, not a pain to the ones helping me. But there would just be, you're like, yeah, you, you could see me like this guy, right? There would just be a part of me like, leave me alone, Jared. I can wheel myself down here. Come on, Jared. I can do this, you know? No, you can't, Grandpa. No, you can't, you know? Yes, I can, you know? I can feed myself, you know? Just as long as Jared has to change my diapers, I'm okay with him taking me where I don't want to go in the wheelchair, right? Just as long as he has to do it all. Just as long as he has to turn me over, you know, and get it all out, get it all out, you know. (laughs) You know, that's what my mom had to do in a nursing home. She was the nurse's aide. So what are nurses' aides? They're the ones who do the things the nurses don't want to do. Go clean that. And that's what my mom had to do. She had to clean grown hineys for many years in the nursing home. So I don't know what your greatest fear is, but will you trust God? Will you face it with courage? Because the Bible says, 2 Timothy 1, 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind, self-discipline, and other translations. So keep up your courage, men. Verse 25, Paul said, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run, ag- run aground on some island. 27 on the 14th night. see I mean history once again, 14th night we were suffering like this because we didn't listen to the man of God for 14 long nights. We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about the midnight when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep and sounding is just dropping something down so they can know uh, the depth of it. So they found out they were just basically right around 200 feet deep. Verse 29, fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors. You could see probably two in front and two in the the back. From the stern, oh, they dropped the four from the stern. Stern is the back of the boat, I believe. Check what part of the boat is the stern. From the stern, there is the port side and there is the stern. There is... What is it, my brother? Stern on a boat. I actually studied this last week and now I'm forgetting. There we go. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so the stern is the back part. So I was right to say that. Port is the left side, starboard is the right, and the bow is the front of the boat, and the entire uh, undergirding of the boat, the body of it, is called the hull. So they uh, dropped four anchors from the back, basically, I guess to kind of like slow it down as it's getting dragged along. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors, verse 30, let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Look at these guys trying to be slick. Oh, we're just lowering down the anchors. And then there's the lifeboat going down. What are you guys doing? No, we're just lowering down more anchors here. And then Paul's like, listen, you all get off this boat. God says you're going to die. The only way you're going to be spared is if you stay on this boat. So they just cut it off. They, they cut off the lifeboat so everybody's in the same position right now. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive because he's basically knowing that they're going to have to swim and get to land here not one of your not one of you will le- lose a single hair from his head the promise is that one that n- none of you will lose a single hair from your head if you do what i say you eat and you do it this way stay on the boat a quick question that comes uh, comes here is people may say this skeptically speaking ashley you mean to tell me that not one hair and all the swimming and all that they did dropped from their head come on you know so there's two ways to take this. Number one is the actual, factual, literal reading of this, and God preserved them miraculously, and just to show off, he didn't let one hair come off of them. Not a leg hair, not, oh, well, leg off their, the hair off their head, they said, but I guess uh, a leg hair, I guess, could fall off. But they will not lose a single hair from your head. So none of this would come off, in other words. Or it was an idiom, a way that they spoke at that time, to say everybody will be all right, nobody will get hurt. Either way, we trust the Word of God. The Bible says that the Israelites lived in the desert for 40 years and their clothes and shoes didn't wear out. I believe that. They walked on dry land um, when the Red Sea was parted. I believe that. If God can raise from the dead, I believe all of this can happen as well. And once again, it's not that we're just foolish believing whatever the Bible says. But if these first words of the Bible are true, in the beginning, God, those first four words and all things are possible that don't contradict logic and truth, okay? As long as the Bible's not saying that God created a square circle or a married bachelor, in the beginning God, God can make people go through a shipwreck and not lose a hair on their head. Or it could just be an expression. It's up to you how you want to take it. Verse 35, after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. Then he broke it and began to eat. This would be symbolic of a communion. This is basically how they would take communion. He's basically having communion with them. He's blessed it. And if you look into the early church, which we never really talked about here, but communion for them was actually done at a meal. It was called a love feast. So a communion wasn't a little wafer and it wasn't a little bit of grape juice. It was actually a robust meal, a full meal, and it would have a point where they would do just like Jesus did in the midst of this great Passover meal. Now let us remember Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection with the wine and the bread. Does everybody see that? So it's, it's not just this little, no, 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 it's we're eating. So just imagine you come over to my house and we're eating and drinking. And uh, let's say that, it, that uh, you're not breaking the rules by drinking the wine, okay? So let's just say you're eating and you're drinking and you're fellowshipping and everybody's having fun. And then at some point at the meal, uh, I would stand up or TJ or somebody would stand up and say, let us take the wine now and let us take the bread and remember our Lord and Savior. Everyone get a piece of this bread. This is the body of Christ given for us partake and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and we all take it and we're thankful and this wine is the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ who sh- shed it for us on Calvary for the washing of our sins away. Drink the wine and we all drink the wine and then what do we do? We go back to eat and we go back to celebrating. and it was literally coined, communion coined as a love feast and well, how do we know that? Because in 1 Corinthians we know that at their love feast they were getting drunk. They were taking it too far and that's what he tells them stop doing that. You're not supposed to do it like that. And then they were neglecting the others who didn't, you know, they didn't have enough food for everybody, so they'd only have the clique that would have all the good food. And then the other ones, they would just kind of throw a little, you know, a little communion their way. So we say, no, you guys are, you, no, that's not what you're supposed to come to church for. You have homes to party in, to eat your own food in, in other words, uh, obviously in moderation. But when you come here, it's for the gathering of the church. So treat everybody kindly, share your food, whatever you have, share with everybody. And then when you drink, don't get drunk. Can I hear an amen for that? I mean, so we see the symbolic gesture there, probably of communion, what to him would be a love feast. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. So that's a large ship, right? That's a big ship. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, you know, in the distance. When they decided to run the ship aground, uh, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could, verse 40, cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders, and then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. So they just cut the anchors, got rid of the, the, the ropes holding the sail, and just let it uh, come up. And there they were free to just follow the wind and crash right onto the the ground there. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. That's the hull of the ship there. And the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So the bow would be the front of it, rather, and the, and the bottom part, the bottom front part. And so it gets stuck there. And then the stern, the back part, gets, keeps getting hit by the waves as they're on the sandbar and gets broken to pieces and, and pounded to pieces. And, excuse me. It's broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Now, I was just in the ocean. And you can see this all the time. And they tell you uh, where the sandbars are because that can happen to you. you. You look like you're still pretty, pretty much out in the ocean. But it just, you know, a big sandbar just comes up like that. So you get stuck on that, and then it knocks you over. You know, you're you're kind of stuck now. You're out in the middle of the ocean on the sandbars, and and sometimes, uh, depending on how big your ship is, you can't even stand on it. Now, thankfully, the kind of ship that I'm on. The ships are only about like four feet tall. So if I ever got stuck on a sandbar on the ships that I'm on, I could actually just hop out and then stand and be about this much of water. But if you're on a ship that's, what, 20 feet high or 15 feet high, you're not standing on the sandbar. So you're basically going to swim or drown now. And, it, you know, if you're swimming, you're holding on to something. The waves are coming. It's dangerous in the ocean. Let's just put it that way. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about there have been there. So it's a scary sight. But God gave them a word that they would survive, last final verse this here, verse forty-two. The soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. These guys are crazy. Paul had already told them you wouldn't have lost your ship, you wouldn't have lost all of these things if you would have listened to me. Now listen to me, nobody will die. And the Roman soldiers are still like, we're just going to kill everybody. We won't kill all of you right now. That's the low uh, view of life that these Romans had. This is such a low view of life that they had of people. Verse forty-three. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. So because the centurion didn't want Paul to die, he said, well, let's not kill any of them. And so actually by the favor Paul had, he spared the rest of them. So by wanting to spare Paul's life, they kept them, he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to, the rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 11:25, 25. And I remember Paul Keener talking about this. If this book, the book of Acts, was really meant to be, say, a fictional tale about the life of Paul, then you know what? It would have had all of Paul's adventures. He was shipwrecked, it says, three times. But actually, it only tells the story of one shipwreck. Let's look at it here. In Paul's list of all the things that he's been through, he tells us that he was shipwrecked three times and all these other things that weren't mentioned in the book of Acts. 2 Corinthians 11.25. Oh, now it came up again, didn't it? Well, let's try it like this. 2 Corinthians three times I was beaten with rods. See, we didn't even hear about him getting beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. That was the time we believe he was left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I don't even know if that's the same story. I don't think it is. It doesn't sound like it takes him a night and day in open sea to get there. It possibly could be. But he was shipwrecked three different times. So the story of the book of Acts is not just to be the historical account of Paul's life as an adventure. It's actually to show the history of the church told through the eyes of Paul. starts off with all the apostles, but primarily then through the eyes of Paul. As we look at our uh, timeline we're now in the journey of Paul being uh, t- taken here to uh, Rome, uh, Acts 27, all the way to Acts 28, 16. He's, he's shipwrecked now. No writing, obviously, is happening uh, on the ship that we know of. Uh, possibly he could have been writing something, but all those rest of the letters will be written once he gets to jail. Next chapter, he will arrive in Rome, and it will end with him being on house arrest and meeting with the Jewish people there. To put it back to the map so you can see where he's at, he's somewhere right around here in Malta, right there on one of those sandbars coming to the island. It's going to show him actually arriving in the island of Malta in the next chapter. But uh, so the sandbar and the shipwreck. Is happening somewhere right around there at the end of this chapter. What we can learn from this, I think we all get it. It's a great place to preach a sermon of encouragement in the midst of storms. But here's how I said it. In the midst of the storms of life, trust Jesus. Amen? Come on, amen. Whatever storms you face, Jesus will be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful cohort. This awesome year that we've had. Many of us have already faced storms, and you've brought us through. Some may be entering into new storms. But Lord, your, your, uh, trust, uh, your goodness remains the same, and we trust you no matter what season we're in, whether we're coming out of a storm or going into a storm. We trust you nonetheless. All the same, storms of life or no storms of life, you are good. You never let us down. You never fail us. You always are there for us. And, Lord, what you spoke through the apostle, we receive today, courage. Lord, encourage us. Infuse our lives with courage. Not a... A shallow kind of boisterous courage that just says, I'm not afraid of anything and it's reckless. No, Lord, a courage that can remain firm in our convictions, remain true to our faith, even in the midst of the worst kinds of sufferings. Even when we are so scared, we don't know what to say, who to call, what to do. Lord, may our lives be filled with courage. And I even speak prophetically over this group right now that, Lord, as I've said before, They may... Uh, Forget this message or not think on it much, but Lord, maybe one day when I've passed and I've been with Jesus, I've been in your presence, and they're maybe in their 60s, and the world has changed so much, and they're on a mission field, or they're in some place, God, where it's not air-conditioned with fans and soft seats and Bible college professors and people who love them, Lord, and they're being hated and persecuted, and they're so afraid, like those two Iranian girls who I posted on Facebook one time, they were so afraid they were being uh, threatened with death, oh God, that all these students here, including myself, we would remember this scripture and know you are with us and that you give us courage to even face death, to face our worst fears, and that we would find your goodness, God, your goodness, your goodness in the midst of evil, your light in the midst of darkness. In the name of Jesus. If you feel right now you need me to pray for courage, just raise your hands right now. Just raise your hands. I won't call you up, but I'll just see who you are. If anyone here needs courage, whatever you're facing right now, God, I pray you bless those who are raising their hands right now. I see them, Lord, and I lift them up to you right now. Give them courage. To face what may be unthinkable to them, oh God. What may just literally scare the living daylights out of them, as that expression goes. It just scares them so much to face what they're facing. Give them your courage and your peace. Let them be like Paul, who could eat and know that everything will be well. Even if in the natural, the outcome doesn't look good, like people may die, even though Paul's situation, no one died, but even in their situation, if death is a reality, if things go from bad to worse, Lord, let them still have that same peace. Because even when you were being crucified and Paul was being uh, persecuted or men were being killed, Lord, you still gave them peace unto death. So whether by life or by death, may we all be infused with your courage in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on.